So today's date is March 5th, 2017. The title of today's message is Forceful. Everybody say forceful. forceful. Luke 16, chapter 16, verse 16. Everybody turn there. Say there when you are. Amen. Amen. I'm not there yet, Pastor, but I'm making it. Come on, let me hear some more theirs. Oh, you're not going to sleep in this church. I'll call you out. Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. One of the major characteristics that defines who LCMS, Life Change of Ministries, is the same thing that defined who Christians were in the early church. Right now, our team in Turkey is visiting the first area outside of Israel where they were called Christians. Now, there was a time span of roughly eight years from the day of Pentecost until that time when they started to become called Christians. God had to heat up with persecution in the, in the region of Jerusalem and Israel to get the saints off of their rear end and begin to fulfill the great commission that Jesus stated in Matthew 28. You know that the kingdom of God is advanced by obedient servants that will do whatever it takes to be forceful. Now, obviously, I do not mean in the physical sense that we're going to go take up arms and use our own military might to advance God's kingdom. That was deeply frowned upon whenever Peter took out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. That's not the means that we're going to do it. Instead, we take that same vigilance, and that same forcefulness, and we apply it to the heavenly realms. Because we know that the word says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, rulers, and authority. Where? In the heavenly realms. So just to be sure that we all know what we're talking about this morning, we're talking about the word forceful. Everybody say forceful. Go to Genesis chapter 32. While you're turning there. Just a, a polite show of hands. How many of you guys have had some type of counseling session or meeting with one of the pastors in Life Change and Ministries and it felt a bit forceful? Frank was the first to raise his hand. <laughs> Amen. I love your honesty, brother. So for those of you who raised your hand, without that force, would you be in the same state you are now? No. That it took force to either remove something or move something in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's look at Jacob, because we're talking about some forceful men in the word that we can compare ourselves to and eventually learn how we can be forceful. So Genesis 32, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. Jacob was left alone. Everybody say alone. alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Don't you just love those little inserts? It's, like, it's a skip in the beat. Wait, 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 wait. And all of a sudden, just a dude appeared and start wrestling with him. What's up with this? How did it get to this point? 
obviously God didn't see it important enough to put that detail in there. You just need to know that after he was all alone, had sent all his possessions across the other side of a river, he had to wrestle with something. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Now, let me give you a bigger picture of what's happening here in Genesis 32. Previously, in 31, he has received the fullness of his inheritance. He's done working for Laban. So he has the wife that he loves. He has Leah, who he kind of loves. And he has their maidservants. And with all of his possessions now fulfilled and in his lap, he is journeying to go settle his entire family. And in that journey, he's going to come across his brother Esau. Well, let's rewind a little bit. Jacob tricked uh, his father to steal Esau's blessing, right? So here we have in in chapter 32, the fulfillment of that blessing, which he stole from his brother Esau, is now in his full possession. And he's about to go meet his brother Esau. And in typical Jacob fashion, he begins to line out with manipulation and deception. I'm going to stage out the, those, the people and the things that I love the least. I'm going to put out front to meet Jacob, just in case he just starts to want to slaughter everyone. And I'm going to take what I love the most, I'm going to bring it closer to me. And there's some incremental layers in between that. That I am so fearful that I'm going to lose my possessions, I'm going to manipulate the situation to guarantee that at least what I love, I'm going to be able to keep and escape with. Let's put yourself in Jacob's shoes. What in your life have you used your natural strength, whether it be manipulation or passivity, to get God's will? And to some degree, because you were passively aggressive, and and tenacious about it, God showed his favor upon it. Or because you weren't being aggressive with just the fleshly nature, God honored your humility in that regard. But then there comes a time when the fulfillment of what God is giving you is now in your lap, and you're going to revert back to that same default tool. And God doesn't allow you. He forces you to come face to face with the very thing that you have been trying to circumvent all of your life. You know what, Pastor? I've just gone from job to job. And everywhere I go, I try to get along with everybody there. And there's just that one boss that I can't get along with. And I, I try to talk to him. I try to work harder. I try to this and that. But I, just, I feel like it's God that I find another job. And all of a sudden, he puts you in a financial situation and in a position where you can't leave that job. There is no other job to go find you, I mean, to, to, for you to go find And he hems you in so that you can finally face the very thing that you have been trying to circumvent and go around all of your life. I'm going to say forceful. It's a blessing that God shoves in your face. And when you have 
separated yourself from all of these attachments, all of these blessings, right? The families that Jacob had had, they are blessings. They are promises that were given to him by his father Isaac laying hands on him. But once a little bit of separation occurred and he was all by himself, he wrestled with God. Now, the result of wrestling with God was that Jacob overcame. No, there's a tenacity that has to be obtained when you're pursuing the will of God. Without it, like in Luke 16, it is for the forceful that you will have to force your way into the kingdom. You know, it's much like trying to get a, a plate of food at my house from time to time. <laughs> my girls are beautiful girls, but what they are known for is a love for food. I think they get that from their mother <laughs> and possibly their father as well. And when we cook certain trays of food or crawfish or whatever it may be, and we put it out there, they look like little piranhas. If you just stand by and wait for your opportunity to fix your plate, you're not going to get the portion that you had hoped for. There's a lesson to be learned that the things of God are put in front of us. But we are not to be these mute and idle robots that are just waiting for the command and power of God to do everything for us. Instead, we're going to step in faith like every other man of God has to in the past, and we're going to forcefully pursue what God has put in front of you. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the next, next item, Joshua chapter 7. You know, Jacob struggled with God and who else? Struggled with God and men. In fact, Pastor Wade uh, preached a message not long ago called In Your Face. You know that word pineal, the name of that area where, where Jacob struggled with God and men? It means at the face of God. Then he came face to face with, with who God was. And it caused contention with the things of God and also with men. Last Sunday or last Wednesday, Wade preached a message called Be Done With It. This is throwing off baggage and attachments and commitments that you've already laid on yourself that God hasn't given you. So what is God shoving in your face that you need to let go of so you can actually continue and do the will of God? When Jacob left that struggle and overcome, he had a limp. You're going to walk over, but you're going to limp back. How has your walk changed as a result of coming face to face with God? And removing your old ways of doing things. Let's look at the same thing here in Joshua chapter 7. We'll go to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? I'm going to pause right here. From this vantage point, meaning here on the stage as a worship leader and part of the worship team, I get to see all of y'all's faces. During worship, before worship, after worship, I can tell almost precisely who God is working on at that exact moment with a word that comes forth or just a direction and feel and a spiritual flow of what's happening in worship. And there are times I see you guys come and you put your face to this altar 
that you're responding to coming face-to-face with God and you're getting your heart right. You're wrestling with whatever it is, trying to get it right. But there are times when I can look and see you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Why are you on your face? Let's read further Joshua's accounting of this. And I want you to measure yourself against Joshua. Have you ever been in this exact same state where you're on your face mourning something that God didn't ask for you to mourn? And we'll look at why. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. Let me give you the context. We have Achan's sin. He didn't know about it, he meaning Joshua. And he went out into battle in the town of Ai. And Achan had stolen from the previous conquering, which is Jericho, the first town to be conquered, where everything in that town was to be solely devoted to God. They were to keep nothing for themselves. They could have possessions after that, but the first one belonged to God. Achan took that. And as a result, the next battle they went into, in fact, Joshua said, you know what? We're not going to take as many men as what we normally would. We'll take about 3,000. This is going to be an easy fight. We don't really have to be that forceful. They went in and they got their rear ends handed to them. They lost that battle. And as a result, now Joshua comes back and he's falling on his face and he's wondering, Lord, what did I do? What went wrong? And you can tell the sternness of God's voice when he first said, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? If you were down in this position and losing battles, sometimes you need to pick your head up and look around you. Where is the sin? So I want you to take three notes in regard to this. When you are losing small battles and they are eating your lunch, a tire blows on the car, and next thing you know, you and your your wife get into a fight that nearly ends in saying the D word. You come home. There's a small water leak in the kitchen. And your spiritual walk is nearly decimated from that point forward for the next week. Why are you on your face? The things to evaluate. Number one, is there sin in you? You self-assess. What's my condition with God? Am I holy before the Lord? Number two, sin in the camp. What responsibility has God given you that you are to be overseeing? You're to be sensitive in spiritual discernment. Number three, aware of spiritual powers. Now, in Joshua's case, I'm more than certain that he knew that he was right with God. That he knew the spiritual powers that he was dealing with. He knew the enemies at hand. But what he was unaware of was sin in the camp. You know, evaluating your own household can sometimes be the hardest thing to do because you're either right here up close or you're far out there in battle. I want to speak to you men of God, particularly you men of God who have households. 
I want you to relate to this in a personal manner. You will spend time on your face getting right before God. You will spend time exerting force and advancing God's kingdom in ministry, whether it be prison, whether it be home meetings or something else. But if you neglect the condition of your own household, you will lose every single time. And when you go down upon your face, the Lord will speak to you, what are you doing down there? He will speak forcefully to you to get your head up, look around you, discern on a daily basis what condition is your household in and what do you need to do for it. I smell idolatry. And when you do, don't stop until you root it out. Men of God, don't be passive in your own households. Search out that which makes you liable to destruction. People's lives are at hand. You know, one of the more grieving things as time goes by sometimes in a church is to look at church pictures and functions that have happened. It grieves my soul. Because I see those who needed to be more forceful in advancing God's kingdom in the sin in their own life, in the sin in the camp, and against spiritual powers. And in one of those three, if not all the above, they let down their guard, begin to compromise and become apathetic, and they ended up being liable to destruction. And it not only affected them, it affected their households. Children's lives now changed for the, forever unless there is another major move of God to redirect their course, which there can be. So men of God in this room, evaluate your hearts. Have you been in the same position as Joshua? And the Lord is telling you today, pick your head up, evaluate your camp, discern by the power of the Holy Ghost where the sin is, and don't stop till you root it out. Amen? Amen. Verse 13, go, consecrate the people. Now he was saying this to Joshua about the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted among you, O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. You know, there's a combination of some Hebrew words here I won't go into, but that particular phrase, stand against, another way to say it is get up and fight. That you will not be able to get up and fight until you remove the idolatry, that self-promoting or, or self-strength uh, possession that you've acquired for yourself. Once you remove it, guess what happens? The power of God can break out through you, through your household, and you can take on spiritual forces like a boss. You can go in and have Matthew 10, 7 at work in your very own household where your children can lay hands on the sick. They can raise the dead. They can cast out demons. And the adults can too. Struggling with God and struggling with men should result in a level of holiness that makes you available to be forceful with the spiritual powers at hand. Amen? Let's talk about David. First Chronicles 21, verse 17. Say there when you are there. First Chronicles 21. There we go. Come on. I want to hear some more. There, 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 there. 
Starting in verse 17. Come on, y'all still awake this morning? I'm not boring y'all to death? No? Y'all need some coffee? Need a coffee break? All right. Now, y'all can't have donuts because that's sugar. Number one, you're going to make me jealous. Number two, that puts you to sleep in a heartbeat. Verse 17, David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O Lord, my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. The context of what's happening, you can see in verse 1, that Satan incited David to take a census. As a result, 70,000 men died. An angel of the Lord appeared and basically gave him three different options. Where do you want this sword to be applied? And he said, let there be a plague. Because he did not want to be handed over to his enemies. A plague broke out. 70,000 men died. And David had enough. And he cried before the Lord here in verse 17. And he took personal responsibility. Now what's unique is that in the, the Chronicles accounting of this, it says the Lord incited it. You know, you'll get yourself in positions that after many successes in Jesus, you begin to have a tendency of relying on your own strength, the old way of doing things. And when you're approaching a next battle, I can tell you, especially for your, some of your more matured men and women in this room, the question is not, can God do it? The question and the fear and insecurity is, can you do it again through me? You know, it's one thing to be 16, 17 years old on the football field in high school and take hits and, and be forceful. It's another thing to be 40 out on the football field. I may go out there, but I may not come back. <laughs> that question of insecurity got David in trouble. And he relied on his own strength just by counting his fighting men. It upset Joab so bad, he didn't even count the tribes that he was responsible for. And he confronted David about it, and David rejected it. Verse 18, the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. You know that, that word build is that same Hebrew word I mentioned earlier, but it means get up, stand up. You know, your repentance enables you to get up and then fight, to get up and then fight. There's only so long you can mourn your sin at this altar until there comes a point in time you got to get back on your feet so that you can fight. You're going to read later the purpose of resurrection power. It's not so that you can stand in the glass case and be stared at by all to say how beautiful you are. You are filled with resurrection power today and will be in the future in the fullness of having a resurrected body so that you can get up and that you can fight. You have to be forceful about the things of God. Why? Because there is a force upon you. 
There is no neutral state. There is no Sweden to run to. There is only a battle line, and either you're on one side of it or you're on the other. you got to pick. Anytime that there is gray, well, I don't know if I should say this to that person or it's not really the right time. Or Let me be clear with something. The Word of God says in Revelation 21.8 that the cowardly will not enter the kingdom. That same Greek word used for cowardly is the same one used in Timothy when Paul is encouraging him, you have not received a spirit of fear. The more accurate translation is you have not received a spirit of cowardice. Now look, if we're honest, cowardice is not the same as contemplation. But contemplation to the point of disobedience is cowardice. So there are moments when you're going to be asked by God to do something and it is not clear exactly how you should do it or what you should do. But what you should be doing is forcefully entering into God's word and to his presence, seeking his counsel and saying, Lord, I want to do something. I know I should do something. I just need you to direct me. Show me what to do. You know, an angel of the Lord came to David's servant and then the servant brought that word to David. David's cowardice led him to the point of other men losing their lives. But he repented of that cowardice the minute he began to build that altar. He built it with obedience. The beautiful thing about David's life is that now he's most known for, number one, having a heart after God, and number two, sleeping with Bathsheba. You know, there's so many more other things that surpass that. In effort to acquire Bathsheba, he murdered one of his mighty fighting men. Lied about it, kept it hidden, and took Nathan to expose it. And here, later on in his life, he takes a census. And it causes 70,000 men to lose their life. Men of God. And I'm going to shift to you ladies here soon. But men of God. What in your life? Is God asking you to step up to the plate in and confront? And because you don't have the plan already lined out, because you don't have the words, it's not the right timing, you're just sitting on your rear end waiting for that to descend from heaven and land on your lap. What are you doing? What responsibility are you taking in saying, I need to pursue God? I need to find out what his word says. You know what? I'm not going to watch Netflix tonight, I'm going to read the word. Because I am desperate and I'm hungry for an answer of God. Other people's lives depend upon it. I have to force my way into the kingdom. Repentance is to turn and build. So just coming to an altar, it's only the start. In and of itself, it is worthless if you don't turn 180 degrees from this altar and then begin to go build in obedience what God originally told you to do. Y'all going to build? Yes. Let me hear the men say it. Y'all going to build? Yes. Amen. I trust you. Acts chapter 2. Let's look at another forceful man of God. Peter.
Come on, who else is there? There we go. Talk to me, baby. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up. Everybody say, stood up. Stood up. With the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. He paused right here. Once again, in, in light of David, there were things of Peter's life that were, are commonly known to us, right? Come on, shout them out. Talk to me. What is Peter most known for? <laughs> Wait, I can't get past that one. Talking too much. Yes. <laughs> Deny Jesus. What else? Walking on water. What was that? Cutting off Malchus's ear. Can you say that he was a forceful guy? But when it came crunch time, his own fear and insecurity got the best of him and his pride of saying, surely not I, Lord. I won't deny you. Jesus said, "Mm, actually you will, and you'll do it three times. He lacked the, the ability to have personal insight and discernment about his own condition. It was super inflated. Pride is the most blinding element that there is in our lives it is subtle it can grow and like a balloon it just keeps filling up and filling up and it has an appearance of mass until all it takes is one fine pressure point of obstacle and you are deflated in an instant all of a sudden you're hiding under a rock and crying out to god lord save me Now, there's nothing wrong with being crushed. In fact, pride needs to be crushed. God will crush it eventually. But for you men of God and now you women of God, self-exaltation is never a means of accomplishing God's will. And it's usually a direct result of your own fears and insecurities. So men, if you try to be more macho, if you try to outdo a spiritual war story when we're all sitting around, and it's birthed out of a heart of, I just want to prove to everybody that I'm not really as weak as what I really feel like I am. You know that that is as blatant and as evident to everybody in the room as a neon pink shirt? It stands out. Everybody knows it. And what we're trying to figure out from that point is, how do we lovingly tell you that that is the case and then help you out of it? Ladies, when you compare yourselves with yourselves, well, I don't feel beautiful at all, but at least I'm not as ugly as she is. Come on. Yeah, y'all laughing because it's true. Pride blinds your ability to have right assessment and thereby... You hinder, if not make it impossible, for God to be able to use you in a forceful manner. Using your own senses, your own strength, to accomplish God's will. Let's finish what Peter said. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. You know what happened prior to this? He denied Jesus three times. He went and he hid. He wept bitterly over what he had done. Jesus came and restored him three times, and then he got filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, being filled with the Holy Ghost 
has an accompanying accessory of being bold? Being bold and being forceful comes with being filled with the Holy Ghost. But he first had to go through a crushing of his pride and repentance so that he could be filled with something other than his own insecurity and pride. Saints, we need the baptism of the Holy Ghost every single day. I wake up in the morning, if I have any issue whatsoever, and my flesh is starting to rise up, just in my own thoughts, I have to kick in the tongue, into tongues. I have to rely on the power of the Holy Ghost to lead me through. When I open up this word, I am not a scholar. I just know that I am forceful in seeking after the things of God. And if I put my face in front of this long enough, the Holy Ghost is going to illuminate it and give me exactly what I need for other people. You know, the same coward that Peter was when he denied Jesus three times, now repentant and full of the Holy Ghost, he stood up in front of the same exact people he cowered in front of. And at the end, he said, this gift is for you, your children, all who are far off, to all whom the Lord our God will call. He was immensely forceful. To the point of issuing justice and righteousness in the, in the first church with Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, those footsteps you hear, that's your spouse, and they're going to die too, just like you. Whew, that's bold. That's forceful. So in comparison, you guys have it pretty light at LCM. Right? None of y'all drop dead. <laughs> so there is hope in the name of Jesus. Let's go to Acts chapter 14. Forceful. So we talked about Joshua. We talked about Jacob. Talked about David. Talked about Peter. Paul. Does anybody know what his name means? Paul. Paul means small. Right? Well, his name was Saul. And after a period of time after being born again, he changed his name to Paul. I'm pretty sure when it comes to his personality and his tenacity, there was nothing in small stature whatsoever about it. Can't you clearly see in all of his writings and the life that he lived that he demonstrated a forceful nature? More importantly, would you like to have that same kind of forceful nature? You know that Paul is no different than anybody else in this entire room. The same Holy Ghost that fills him fills you. The same Word of God that you read, he read. And you can do the same things that he did. The question is, are you willing to pay the cost to be forceful? Let's look at that. Chapter 14, verse 19. Then some Jews from Antioch came, or from Antioch and Iconium, and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, say got up, and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. Well, Paul's right there. So you have a man of God who is, I think at this point in time, on his second missionary journey. And he goes into a town and he is stoned nearly to death. Left outside that town, he gets up and goes back in. Now keep that in mind as we begin to read forward. 
Because you know you can't preach something that you really haven't lived. Watch this. Verse 21. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, saying, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There is a narrow gate that leads to the kingdom of God. And that is resurrection power. That's a life restored. That's freedom from sin. And that gate is hardship. That there is no other gate to go through. If that's the gate that the king of kings went through, that's the gate that all the men of God in the past have gone through, then it's no different for you or I. Now granted, we don't live in a society that is going to stone us with actual stones. But what you will have in our society is that they will stone you with accusation of being intolerant. They'll stone you with a sense of injustice that how dare you judge someone else and then quote scripture to you, judge not lest you be judged. There's a variety of things you can say back and we can cover that after the service. But they will ostracize you and belittle you. And make you feel like you're either not a real Christian or more importantly, not a real human being if you have the belief system that you do. The difference is between you and them is that you have the resurrection power of God at work within you. And sin is no longer your master. And as a result, you are at war with sin. You are at war with the principalities in the heavenly realms. And you are an ambassador to the person in front of you. Being an ambassador, you are to be diplomatic. You are to deal gently with those who oppose the truth. But you are a military giant when it comes to dealing with demonic powers. That your force is to be applied to the spirit behind that person that is controlling them like a puppet. That has blinded their eyes and taken them captive to do Satan's will. Because remember, like I said, there's a battle line. And you're either on one side or you're on the other. And both are forcing themselves upon each other. Either be forceful or be forced upon. There is no happy medium. Let's look at this further. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, say there when you are there. I just want to take a side. Having children is a beautiful thing. We have several pregnant ladies in our church. And women glow when they are pregnant because they're full of life. It's beautiful to watch. But all you ladies who have had babies, there comes that point in labor when you're saying, Lord, if there be any other way, any other way let this cup pass from me. I'm about to die. That's how you know you're at the final point of of labor. But you know, there's no other way to truly experience birth the way that God has designed other than the hardship of labor and giving birth. Same way in doing the will of God. If it is true for birthing children in the natural realm, how much more true is it evident in advancing God's kingdom? Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. 
in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. You know, later on in 2 Corinthians, he gives a more detailed list of what he endured. But can't we say this is written by a man who knows what he's talking about? He's not just pretending to be in hardships. He is sharing with you the very things that he himself has endured as a result of just being an obedient servant to the king of kings. 2 Timothy 1.8. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. So do not be ashamed to testify about our God or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You know, Paul was asking others to join him in that suffering because he himself had joined Jesus in his suffering. In fact, let's turn to it. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, starting verse 10. If you're there, say there. Come on. There we go. That rain's getting a little louder. A little more sedating. Warm cup of chai. Nice little snacks and little cookies to dip in the Thai chai. Wake up in the name of Jesus. Philippians 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. No, we stop right there. That's a great message. Yeah, I want to know the power of God and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Equally as much. You know why? Because without that suffering, without that hardship, there is no resurrection power to be had. We see it all the time. Why don't we see as many miracles in America as we do as other places? Because we provide for ourselves the resurrection power that we need. We have the availability and the resources to depend upon our own strength, our own senses, rather than solely the power of God. One of the moments I witnessed this was in Kenya. Me and my wife are there visiting Opingo. One of his children breaks out with a fever. We don't have a thermometer. We can't tell how high it is. But they're lethargic and feel the top of their head. And they're burning up. And one of the major things in that area is malaria. And they started saying, we think she has malaria. She's showing all the signs. I'm like, well, we're going to do exactly what Matthew 10, 7 says to do. I'm going to lay the hands on the sick and we'll see them heal. And I'm telling you, it's no different than the times at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm half asleep, I lay my hands on my kids whenever they're sick, and I just pray. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke this fever. I command every cell in their body to be made whole and health in the name of Jesus. Fever break and be loose. You know, with, with my kids in, in this area, I just know I'm going to have to do it about five or six times. It's going to be two, three days of just wrestling with this. We did the exact same thing with this little girl in Kenya. I'm going to be honest with you, just insight into my own heart. 
I was expecting it to go just like it would here in the U.S. with my own kids. Like, Jesus, I trust that you could do this, but I'm prepared to do it as much as possible. You know, we walked away and five minutes later came back. That child is running around the yard and fever-free and stayed fever-free. You know why? Because the nearest doctor is about 20 miles away. And we're talking about a doctor in Kenya. may not be the same level of care that we have here. Here we have an emergency clinic on just about every corner. Got about as many emergency clinics here in Houston as we do mattress firms. You see a mattress firm is about as much as you see a Starbucks. So our availability to provide for ourselves has insulated us from the power of God. Why do we need the fellowship and sharing of Jesus' sufferings? So that his resurrection power can be demonstrated. If we're trying to avoid suffering and staying with our comfort, but still beckoning for the resurrection power of God to be displayed, we are circumventing the confrontation no different than Jacob did in Genesis 32. We're bypassing the power of God and the method in which he has designed it for to be displayed. You know what the honest truth is? We'll continue to read on. You know what suffering does inside of me? It keeps me from getting the glory. I'm going to be honest with you. Being able to minister in ministry with my best friends, this is the dream that I've always wanted. I couldn't ask for a better life. But I can say that way back then, 17, 18 years old, I had no idea of the level of pressing, the level of hardship that was required to be where I'm at today. I didn't realize how much of me was still in the mix of doing God's will. Paul understood this. He later goes on to ask the Lord three times to remove from him this thorn in his side. And the Lord says, no. In your weakness, my power is made perfect. We want the power of God, but as long as it doesn't cost us our strength. Verse 12 in Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now that's a cute little verse. I just press on today. You know what? I drove through Starbucks and I dropped my drink at the window and it fell on the ground. But I'm pressing on and I'm sharing in the, the fellowship of suffering with Christ. Somebody cut in line to me today in front of, in Luby's. And I wasn't able to get my buffet of food as quickly as I had hoped for. First world problems. The reason I read all the, the previous scriptures to give you an idea of the context that Paul is saying here in verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Where did he find you? He found you in a stank and a wretch of sin and death. Every single one of you. And I myself included. And out of that wretched death and that state that you were in, a slave to sin, he snatched you out of it. So what do you owe him? You owe him your life. And if what he chooses to do is to squeeze you with suffering so that he can fill you with his power and there's no glory for you to obtain but only his name to receive it, amen, because I'm dead anyway. Amen. We have to live a life of being forceful, but realize we're going to be forceful in the direction of dying to self because just like it, the requirements of, of Jesus to his disciples, 
you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So don't be surprised. The whole point I'm putting together this message and it's on my heart for you this morning. It's the same it is for me. Is that a lot of you guys are being prepared. Every single one of you are being prepared in this place to do the will of God. That is the purpose of fivefold ministry. To prepare you for works of service. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's hard. It's full of hardship. You want to do ministry out of your home? You're going to put a target on the center of your back and all hell is going to fire upon you. Be prepared for it to be hard. Because you know what? If it ends up not being hard in a moment, you won't be surprised. And you won't be discouraged and defeated. Be prepared to be forceful about the things of God. If he's told you to do something, if he's told you that you're going to have children, amen, work at it in the name of Jesus. What force? If he's told you you need a job in a certain location, don't give up just because the first time you put in a resume, it's rejected. With force. In the name of Jesus, advance God's will. Let's go to Revelation 12. Sometimes you got to say what you got to say. I saw y'all smirking. I'm being literal, not figurative. I'm being forceful in the name of Jesus. Revelation 12, verse 17. Look, on a side note, not to divulge too much, but the reason that I use that example about having children, because me and my wife struggled for three years to have children. Three years may not sound like much, but that's 36 months of being disappointed and dejected. There came a point when we ceased to have the mindset of just being victims to a circumstance. Instead, we became victors that conquered it in the name of Jesus. I tell everybody, my wife is like an old weed eater. It's hard to get her started, but once she's going, she can't stop. You're the best weed eater in town, baby. So it's personal to me. Revelation 12, verse 17. Moving right along. <laughs> then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war. Everybody say war. war. Uh, hey, y'all did a good job. That was deep too. <laughs> to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. There is no safe zone in the kingdom of God. Because you are born again, you are at war. And I don't know about you, but when you go to war, it's going to require force. There's some movies that have come out recently that depict a true story about a man's life who was a conscientious objector. He wouldn't hold a firearm, but instead he was a field medic, a combat medic. And he went and forcefully rescued his men and other men and even the enemy's men to bring them to a point of being healed and being saved. He was not a coward by any chance because he wouldn't hold a firearm. He was a hero because he would forcefully advance the mission of the platoon, of the regiment, in rescuing other men's lives. No greater love has a man than to lay down his life for another. 
Because you were born of God, it puts you in immediate odds with the prince of darkness. All hell wants to destroy you. Get that deep down in your soul. That's the forces that are acting upon you. In return, we're forcefully back. Revelation 19, verse 11. We begin to wrap it up here. There. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Evangelizing and sharing your life with other people as a hope, a beacon, and a source. It does involve the principle that God loves them. And we know that, for God so loved the world. The other side of that is because God loves this world and gave his only son up for them, that they may be saved, that he will utterly and completely punish those who reject his son. He has given mankind and creation his best. And the only thing that can save them from their sin, which means anyone who rejects the blood of Jesus, rejects the kingship of Jesus, is saying out loud, I love sin. I love my sin, to be more particular. I would rather be a God unto myself or worship something other than you because I like the way that it serves me than what I have to give up to follow you. You know, idolatry is the number one thing that men's hearts gravitate to. The first and second commandment address this. That's why they're the first and the second. Jesus is coming back to make war. He came first as the Lamb of God to pay for our sins, to free us from the slavery of sin. But then he is coming back as a lion to establish his kingdom and be done with sin once and for all. All of its effects. That is the true enemy of mankind. That is the very thing that we are at war with. You know, time to times I get frustrated as a pastor whenever someone tells me, oh, you know what, just the... The devil's man, he's hammering me today, and you know, the devil's working on me. What are you wrestling with? All that sounds like your own sinful nature. Don't give the devil too much credit here. 
Don't think of yourself really that important. The devil's going to focus on just you today to get you to give in to porn. It's your own sinful nature. What are you at war with? Your own sinful nature. What are you at war with? Other people's sinful nature. What are you at war with? Sin in this world and the effects of it. The solution is to be forceful, but in this manner. Verse 14 of Revelation 19, where we were. The armies of heaven were following him. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The way that you are appropriately forceful is that, number one, you are following Jesus into battle. You only make war where he is making war. And as you make war, you're wearing fine linen, white and clean. What does that stand for, saints? Righteous deeds. Deeds done in obedience to the, the will and the word of God displaying itself through you. If you do it with your own arm and your own flesh, curses the man who leans upon his own arm. But instead, if we are an army that is riding behind Jesus, we also are covered by his name. So lastly, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh. Everybody say thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As we were studying, Pastor Wade came across a gold just mound here in the Word. So the word here, thigh, those of you taking notes, is Strong's Numbers 3382. It's called Meros. Meros is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Older Testament. And its equivalent in Hebrew is Strong's number 3409, Yarek. Yarek is seen in Genesis 32, speaking of the word hip. Jacob's hip. What happened after the, the man of God that he wrestled with touched his hip? He got a new name. What is your wrestling? What is your toil? What is your result of being forceful going to do? It's going to give you a new name. It's going to give you his name. That you get to be part of the army of God falling behind him, dressed in white and fine linen. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords is leading you into battle. Your name now becomes he who struggles with God and has overcome. So I challenge you all. This morning and for the remainder of your lifespan, not just this week. What are you running from? What are you circumventing? What is leaning, if not is cowardice that is preventing you from being forceful? Because there is an end goal to achieve. And that is having a new name written on your thigh. Your walk will look different. Because your hip is touched. Let's stand on our feet.